Well, at this time, I want to invite you to turn into your Bibles or open up your device to Exodus chapter 20. If you have been with us, uh, we have been going through the book of Exodus, but we have stopped and we're kind of settling in and taking our time with the Ten Commandments. And so each week, we've been taking another commandment. And so this week, we come to the Sixth Commandment. And just to give you a little bit of context, Israel has been rescued, delivered from Egypt, which itself was a place of violence and death and murder. And so here they are. They've come out of the land. They have come to Mount Sinai. And here they are receiving the Ten Commandments. God is in relationship with them, and he wants them to now follow and walk in his ways. And so this morning we come to the Sixth Commandment. And I will be reading verses 1 through 13 of Exodus chapter 20. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You shall not surf on Wolf Creek. It's probably not the commandment you expected me to get up here and talk about this morning, but I want you to be very clear on what I'm saying, so I'll say it again. You shall not surf on Wolf Creek. I went to a small college north of Pittsburgh called Grove City College, and the campus is divided in half by what is academically known as a creek, but is little more than a few rocks that when it rains has some water running over it. And my freshman year, not long after I got on campus, they passed out to each student the student handbook. It's called the Crimson. And it's the book that contains all the rules and regulations for students of Grove City College. And I found it very interesting that there was a very specific rule in there prohibiting surfing on Wolf Creek. 
Surfing on Wolf Creek would be nearly impossible, but the fact that they had to list it in the student handbook as something that's prohibited says something. It says something first about the institution that made the rules. It says that the institution cares enough about their students that they don't want them to surf on Wolf Creek and smack their head on a rock, or at the very least, they don't want to be sued if that happens. And secondly, it says something about college students. It says that they're foolish enough to try to surf on Wolf Creek. Rules tell us something. Rules tell a story. And if you think about any rule, you can come up with the reason why that rule exists. And you can figure out that that rule tells us something about who makes the rules and tells us something about the people to whom the rules apply. We come today to the sixth commandment in our series through Exodus. And it's a commandment that seems obvious. Do not murder. I think if you took a poll of 100 people from almost any time period throughout history, you would almost get a universal response in agreement that this is a good rule, that you should not murder, that you should not take an innocent life by intentional negligence. So why does this rule need to be written down and encoded? As we study the Sixth Commandment today, I want to tell you that the Sixth Commandment tells us something about our condition as men, as humans. And it tells us something about God's character. So let's dig in first by talking about the Sixth Commandment itself. You know, last time I preached, I preached from Exodus chapter 18, and I got something like 40 verses. Uh, today I got two words. So as I look at the commandment, I want to look at those two words in the original language. The first one is just a word that means don't. And the second one I want to comment on because it's not the normal word for kill. Sometimes the sixth commandment gets translated, you shall not kill. And other times it gets translated as you shall not murder. And there is a little bit of a distinction. Because anytime this word that's used here is used in the Old Testament. It's used to refer to what we would call murder. And secondly, it's never used of God. It's always used in the context of taking an innocent human life by accident or intention. That's the commandment itself. You shall not murder. The root of the commandment is this, that man is made in God's image. The root of the commandment is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, where God creates man specifically on the sixth day, and it says this about the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. 
who created them. What makes human life valuable is that man is made in the image of God. The human body is made up of molecules and DNA, and it goes through processes that are not unlike the same molecules, DNA, and processes that make up animal life. But here's what sets human life apart from that. It's that we bear the image of God. God has set apart man from the rest of creation. Kevin DeYoung, the pastor of Christ's Covenant, said this recently. There are two absolutely essential truths about each one of us as human beings that we need to understand. One, that we are not God. And two, unlike every other creature and created thing, we bear the image of God. That is the foundation of the value of human life. And this plays out clearly uh, if you are reading further in Genesis and you come to Genesis chapter 9 when God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. Genesis 9, 6, God says this, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is what's known as the capital punishment principle in the Noahic covenant. This is, you know, an eye for an eye being read in the Noahic covenant. That if a man is found guilty of murder, he should be put to death. And what is the foundation? It's that God made man in his own image. First, this tells us that not only is mankind as a whole set apart and unique, but it tells us that each individual person is a carrier of God's image. Man, we could apply this in a lot of ways. We could apply this to uh, people's identity and people's self-esteem. Not only as a whole is humankind made in God's image, but individually, each of us bear God's image. Secondly, it shows us that the value of human life is rooted in its relationship to God. My life is valuable because God placed his image upon me. So number one from this Genesis chapter 9, it's that not only is mankind as a whole made in God's image, but individuals bear the image of God. Number two, our life is valuable only because God has placed his image upon us. And number three, it shows us the extent of the value of human life. An innocent life is so valuable that when it is taken in the context of this covenant, God makes an agreement with Noah that the killer must be put to death. The severity of the punishment here is evidence of the severity of the crime. So when we're talking about the sixth commandment itself, it's important to remember that the root of the value of human life is the fact that man is made in God's image. I said that rules tell us things. We're going to discuss now how rules tell us about the condition of man. Although we do bear the image of God, one of the consequences of the fall and the curse in the garden 
is that the image bearer is fallen. After sin, if you look in Genesis chapter 3, when God places the curse upon the serpent and upon the garden and upon the man and the woman, God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The root of all human conflict is sin. And immediately after the fall, the rest of the Bible puts that conflict on display. You know these stories. One generation following Adam and Eve, we have the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy for what is perceived as a slight because Abel's sacrifice is found acceptable. You know, just talking about the, the Exodus and what we've been studying, if you look at Moses' life, when Moses flees into the wilderness, it's because he's fearing for his life because he has taken the life of an Egyptian. One of the great heroes of the faith, David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband, Uriah, pushed to the front lines so that he would be killed. Not long after that, Ahab, king of Israel, when Ahab desired the vineyard of a farmer that bordered his property, his wife, Jezebel, executed an elaborate plot to have him stoned to death on false charges so that her husband could take possession of his property. See, the Bible is full of murderers. Not just the people that we would look at and say, these are clearly the bad guys like Cain and Ahab, but some of the ones that we might call the heroes like Moses and David are also murderers. As a result of the, of the fall, conflict between men increases and increases, and the Bible traces a line of murderers. The image bearer is fallen. The rest of the Bible puts that conflict on display. But here's the true catch. Murder is only the manifestation of sin that is buried within the heart. I think sometimes we come to the Ten Commandments and we look at them as a sort of checklist. You know, we might look at them and say, uh, you know, I've never murdered. I'm pretty good. I've never committed adultery. I'm pretty good. And we can just look down them and work down them and think as long as I'm doing seven or eight of the commandments really well, I'm in good shape. This was the perspective of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, who when he asked what he must do to receive eternal life, Jesus told him, you know, obey the commandments. And he rattles off a few and says, yeah, I, I'm good. I've kept these since my youth. And I think sometimes this is our perspective as well. We look at the Ten Commandments as a barometer of how well we're doing. You're not supposed to borrow from other sermons. It's not best practice when you preach. But I'm going to borrow from one that I think you've probably heard before. It's the most famous sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comments on several of the Ten Commandments in a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And his main point is this. Physical and outward obedience to the commandments is only part of the picture. The commandments are concerned 
with the heart. Our actions flow from what's within our hearts. Listen to Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that is, you're foolish, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus is getting to the root of the matter, saying that our outward sin is only a manifestation of what's in our heart. And who can look at this and say, I've never had unrighteous anger in my heart. One of Jesus' inner disciples, John, comments in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. What a time to discuss hate. It can be seen all around us, but it can also be seen within ourselves. So what does this mean? What does it mean that if you've murdered, if you've hated, you're a murderer? It means that not only is the Bible full of murderers, but this room is full of murderers. God could look at us and declare us guilty. Who among us can honestly raise their hand and say, never have I ever been angry without a cause, never have I ever hated anyone? Because the truth is, if we could murder someone and know that there would be no consequences for that, we would all be murderers. Because we have broken, failing, hateful, sin-infested hearts. And that's what the Sixth Commandment tells us about our condition. But thankfully, the Sixth Commandment also tells us something about God's character. We looked at how God created man in his own image in Genesis chapter 1. Well, Genesis chapter 2 gives us a more full picture, a, a broader explanation of how that took place. A different perspective. Not only are we made in God's image, but it's God who created man in his own image. God bestowed upon man a dignity that he withheld from the rest of creation. God gave life to man of his own volition. Read Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Two things to note. Number one, man was dust, dirt from the ground. And we know this from science. I mentioned it earlier. We're not made up of anything unique. It's molecules. Man was dust. But look at this intimate picture of what God does. God breathed life into man. 
Again, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God's special creation of man shows us that he is the artist behind human life, and God values his masterpiece. What this commandment shows us and points to is that God is the giver of life. But it also points to the fact that God is the protector of life. As we read the Ten Commandments, as we've been going through this series, when we first started, Dean did a great job of setting them in context. He read the first two verses where he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What was slavery like for the Israelites? It was terribly oppressive, highly demanding. If you read about it, they often weren't giving the right, given the right supplies that they needed to do what they were being asked. They had a tremendous burden upon them, and that's just their labor. But if you remember Moses' story, you remember that Pharaoh also commanded that all of the sons of Israel be put to death. You know, he feared that Israel would rise up and be able to overthrow his kingdom. And so he put out this edict that if uh, when the Egyptian midwives went in to help the Israelites, women give birth, if it was a boy that was born, they were to be tossed in the Nile. They were to be killed. This was literally a population control campaign. It was a holocaust, a brutal display of power, and an edict of death. When God brought his people out of Egypt, these were the conditions. God was taking them from a land of death into a land of life with him. That's what slavery meant to the Israelites, the death of their children at the hands of an oppressive nation. God redeemed Israel from the house of slavery and death. He delivered them because they were his people. And that's what this commandment shows. God is saying, remember back in Egypt where your life could be taken by the powerful and the life of your children could be taken by the powerful with no consequences. God is saying here, not in my kingdom, not under my watch. This is wrong. Pharaoh commanded that innocent lives be taken. In this commandment, God forbids the taking of innocent life. God is the giver of life. God is the protector of life. And finally, God is the restorer of life. Number one, he's the restorer of life through his plan of salvation. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Jesus was the only person to walk on this earth who was not guilty of murder, who God could look at and not condemn. And yet he died. He took the punishment for that murder on the cross as a substitute for murderers like you and me. But as we sang about earlier, Jesus did not stay 
dead. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God reigns over death and is therefore able to restore life to his people. And we see this take place immediately after the resurrection. The disciples are in the upper room. They're terrified that they too are going to be arrested and possibly killed for taking place in what was viewed as an insurrection. They'd heard rumors from the women that Jesus had risen from the grave. And as they're in the room with the door locked, Jesus appears to them and says, Peace be with you. And John 20, 22 says, when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's like in the, in the garden when God created man and God breathed on the dust of the ground to give it life. Here Jesus in the upper room breathes on the disciple, this, the disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. God restored life by raising his son from the dead. He restored life to the disciples in the upper room by breathing on them. And if you're a believer today, God has restored your life. Ephesians chapter 2 describes our situation as murderers like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's our situation. We are dead men walking in our sin. But then verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. God has restored to life those who repent and believe. If you're in this room today and you're not a believer, here's your call. Believe and receive life. So this commandment tells us, number one, about our condition. It tells us about God's character. And yet the commandment is still there, calling us to obedience. It calls us to life. You see, the commandment says, do not murder. And the positive side of that is give life. There's a real call here, a call to value life. As Josh mentioned in his prayer, a call to value the life of the unborn, the most marginalized in our society. And here's a really challenging call, a call to end the dehumanization of those we disagree with. How do you feel about those people with whom you really strongly disagree? 
the people that maybe they have a sign in their yard for the political candidate that you are not voting for. Maybe they're a stranger on social media who seemingly stands for everything that you're against. Be reminded this morning that all of those people are image bearers of God. I want to challenge you to pray for those people that you find difficult to love. Why? Not so that you might be loved by God, but because God has brought you out of the house of slavery and death. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you so much for bringing us from death unto life. I pray that you would help us to address the sin in our hearts, the sin of unrighteous anger and of violence. I pray that we would take it seriously. I pray that you would reveal it to us so that we can confess it to you. And I pray that you would help us to walk in the newness of life. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.